Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. Today my guest will be Professor Jim Cobb from the University of Georgia, longtime friend, and he's been on the journal a number of times. Jim is the Finnesse Spalding Distinguished Professor of History there. And today's conversation on the South was recorded in March at the Upcountry History Museum, Furman University, at a program sponsored by the American History Book Club and Forum. During this conversation, Professor Cobb and I wandered from the 17th century to the 21st century as we talked about the subject very dear to both of us, what is the South and where is it going? We'll have that conversation, but first, your NPR news break. This episode of Walter Edgar's Journal is an encore of a previously broadcast program. Production of today's episode of Walter Edgar's Journal was made possible in part by a grant from the Jolly Foundation. Thank you, Reed. We're just going to talk about the South, ladies and gentlemen. We have no set speech. Jim and I have known each other for a long time. You know, in, our, in Reed's introduction, he happened to mention that you and I are both local boys at our universities, which are now being taken over by folks from the Ivy League and Berkeley and places like that. But, you know, I look at your career, and you came back to your alma mater. You have the Finney Spalding Chair, one of the most distinguished historians to precede you in the American South, Finney Spalding. It really has not been hard for us to compete within our own sphere, but what happens when we go north? Let's go to the American Historical Association Convention, and they all have Let's don't do that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I know because I taught at Middlebury College for a while, and at graduation I was wearing my Carolina garnet gown, and it was mistaken for another crimson gown somewhere. Mm-hmm. And I said, the University of South Carolina, and you thought that I had dropped a cow pie in the... <laughs> I mean, there, seriously, folks, there is a real problem. Even today, in this 21st century, folks look at the South not always with great respect. I don't want to ne- dwell too much on the negative, Jim, but, you know, that's just one of the things that stills there. The South is the other. as you, And let's talk about that a minute. You wrote very poignantly about the South as the American other. There's no easier place to find that than in the academic realm. That's very obvious to you, as you point out, from your experiences. And uh, I really have to say I was pretty naive as a young whippersnapper just after I was teaching at Ole Miss, I think, and I went to a, a meeting somewhere, and uh, there was a guy, of uh, Ivy League-trained guy who's also about my age rank and uh, we're going out somewhere and it was windy and and so the wind was whipping my tie around and it got all he said um so is that the way you wear your ties in mississippi and i said only if you're in the clan (laughs) 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 and and the sad thing is, you know, I don't think he realized at first that, that he'd sort of been had. Uh, you know, it, it would have. Yeah. It's amazing. Although I, you know, I, I will say that uh, in, a, in a strange way, uh, bad economic times uh, can sometimes uh, contribute to something good. I do think that the young ranks of professoriate, simply because the job market has been so bad, particularly in our field, there's such a distribution now of PhDs trained from in, in all the Ivy League schools and the Berkeleys and the Wisconsins and what have you, that that uh, there has been a sort of subtle recognition that, hey, there, there, there are people who know what they're doing and doing important stuff out there all over the place. And I mean, I, when my own department, my observation is that the hires that were made about the time I was leaving graduate school were people who uh, couldn't believe they couldn't do better than the University of Georgia and were only, you know, they'd sort of pack with an idea of leaving most of the stuff packed because they were going to get out of there. And then uh, as the years passed and they hadn't gotten out of there, they, they began to think... And they're still associate professors, right? They're still associate <laughs> professors. That's, uh, they couldn't quite figure out, you know, what was wrong because they should have been back at Harvard by then. So, so I do think there's, there is some change out there, but it's, it's a long way from being what I would call a level playing field. 
yet. And you know, even the perceptions, even the kinds of perceptions that you mentioned are, are still definitely out there. Yeah. Let's talk historically on two things. One, I want to talk about the South through history, and another, th- another to talk about the many new Souths. And we can focus then on Greenville, which is certainly a city of at least two or three new Souths. But let's talk about the South through time. And again, this is something you addressed in your, your marvelous book, Away Down South. It goes back to the 18th century, even to the colonial period. The South was looked at as an other rather than an American mainstream. Yeah, well, you know, the Yankees had that foolish obsession with education that um, given that, that, as the economists say, the natural, uh, uh, the comparative advantage down this way lay in agriculture, but uh, there was no such advantage up in New England, so you, you get a more urban focus and you get the Puritan influences on education and what have you. So you get, uh, you wind up with New England uh, as being sort of the birthplace of communication, mass communication, uh, what would become mass communication. You know, they're, they're publishing the, the papers and the, and the quarterlies and the books, and so they're getting to tell the story of America. Uh, much more so than in the South, where the population is dispersed. There are really very, very few cities of any size, and uh, there just isn't the communication network that is going to sort of support that sort of creating the national image. I mean, what, what happened was the, the national image was constructed in New England. And since we didn't have the Brits to menace us anymore and be, be our antithesis, the South was the second best mm-hmm. Alternative and it's striking when you go back and read the early writings about the South that uh, these various magazines that were cropping up in New England, you would think that we had been sort of, uh, you know, we're an upper outcropping of Barbados or something. Of course, South Carolina. We are. Uh, there was a little bit. There, there, by the way, is an interesting theory out now that, that Barbados explains the conservative Southern political establishment now, that the Barbadian model crept out of South Carolina and went forth and multiplied. You just stepped on it. Uh, let's not disparage the Barbadian. Well. Uh, I mean, th- they came. I'm disparaging those who disparage the Barbadian. Oh, oh okay. I'm sorry. Uh, because, you know, those folks came here from Barbados to get rich. They made no bones about it. They came to, and they exploited land, people, resources, and as I've told my friends in Charleston many, many times, in the 18th century, nobody cared who your granddaddy was. The question was, if you had money, money equated to power. That changed, of course, later on. But in the 18th century, that was true. People in one or two generations became members of a very powerful ruling elite. And as I remind our friends in Massachusetts, the richest colony in British North America was South Carolina. Now, I can't say anything about Georgia because y'all just, you know, were an appendage of South Carolina. Well, right? Yes. And our dispute is over which appendage you consider us to be. <laughs> it's, it's interesting. You, you talk about those New England writers, and right after the Revolution, they were recognizing that the revolution in the South was important. George Bancroft's great history of the United States, which was the first great American history, and he was a Boston Brahmin, he devotes a whole volume to the revolution in the South, and he has that wonderful quotation about South Carolina where none braved more, dared more, or achieved more, but by 1855, and I mentioned that date because the South Carolina Historical Society was founded in 1855, and one of the reasons it was founded And in the address of the first president, he talks about our children are learning that America began at Plymouth Rock. They were quite aware that the history books belonged to the Boston publishers. Well, certainly after the war, Southerners uh, caught on to the fact that, uh, you know, they'd been sort of written out. uh, Their ancestors had been written out of of history, and uh, so they tried to make up for lost time by coming out with their own version of the Civil War, which is uh, an interesting sort of identity construction in and of itself uh, because suddenly everybody was a rich planter you know with with uh, dozens Gre- of not slaves. in Greenville County well <laughs> in mythology however but, but, well actually the planter myth has a certain basis if you go back to the the 1860 census 
every county or district in the state, except for Anderson, not Greenville, had at least one planter who owned 100 slaves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's one of the really interesting things about South Carolina is the extent to which uh, slavery, uh, not just that there, there were a lot of large slave holdings, but that they were so dispersed geographically across the state. There's no, no other southern state yeah. could really no, claim that. Uh, well, in 1860, Jim, South Carolina was 60% African American. And there were only 10 districts in the state that had white majorities, and some of those were pretty narrow white majorities. We're talking maybe two or three percentiles. So yes, the African-American population was spread all the way across South Carolina. And you get to Georgetown County and Beaufort County, and you're dealing with demographics that are very Barbadian, eight, nine, and 10 to one black to white population ratios. Well, let me go back to sort of try to salvage something out of that Barbadian thread I started. What I was referring to was this sort of, there's a new book out actually where, where a guy basically is saying that the, the whole governing ethos of Southern Republicans now, it really it can be traced back to this sort of very self-centered, self-aggrandizing mentality that came from Barbados, which I, I think is a, a bit of a stretch. Uh, <laughs> But but uh, it, it's a very facile way of othering the South. Yet you know that you know, the South stands out because it's basically everybody down South has a plantation. All the white people have a plantation mentality that goes all the way back to Barbados. So you know, and that may be some of the more learned commentary of this sort. Unfortunately, well, you know, it's 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 interesting because this is a textile town, and that's where the real money was made. It wasn't made planting cotton. And actually over in the PD, after the war, and of course here as in Georgia when we talk about the war, we're talking about the war, okay? They, that's, that's the way my cousin Amy said it when I was growing up, just my grandmother's cousin, and she put three syllables to a three-letter word. The wah-wah. <laughs> but that was, as we're talking about, you know, a watershed. and. Emmeline, you said you hoped that every student in this state would learn that the American Revolution was fought before the Civil War. I hope that every student in this state would learn that the American Revolution was won here in South Carolina. And I do have an incident I'd just like to share. This was in Spartanburg, and partisans in red coats had come out in 2001, and I was giving a lecture up there, and this wonderfully distinguished gentleman who had on his SCV medals, came up and his comment was, son, I didn't realize we had won a war. <laughs> well, you know, if you believe in history, you believe in the influence of history, none of this is very surprising about Southerners. And certainly sort of seizing on the, the, the experience of being defeated and occupied that's not peculiar to Southerners at all. Anybody ever goes to Europe, uh, the British Isles, you know, you're going to find examples of, of grievances uh, held over centuries upon centuries upon centuries. It's, it's only the, the northern states who uh, basically were sort of spared that. For they, are, they are the exception in world history, right. not the South. Arnold Toynbee had a wonderful quotation in, in one of his many publications, British historian. He talked about growing up in Victoria's time and watching her 60th anniversary Diamond Jubilee, he said, I knew I was a part of history watching that, and he said, if I had been a young lad in the southern part of the United States, I would have known about history because history would have happened to me and my people. Yeah, well, I don't, I don't think it's really coincidental that when history started to happen to all of America in the Vietnam era, compounded by Watergate, and uh, the, the, sort of, the whole country is sort of brought down a peg or two, that, that we can sort of trace the rapid ascent of Southern influence in Washington and, and the sort of adaptation of Southern culture nationwide to that particular era, because I think it, it did, in a way, southernize uh, the, the rest of the country. The, the, the experience, the humbling experiences that were sort of... Well, now, you've written about that. I did mention it, I believe. Yeah, but are you saying it was southernized in a good way because 
when people are saying that bad things are now happening in Ohio and Indiana and Illinois, that it's because of the Southern influence? Well, yeah, you know, I've, that's uh, you really have uh, sort of uh, come up with one of my pet peeves. Uh, you and I both know Peter Applebaum, who was the uh, Times bureau chief in Atlanta for a long time, and wrote a very interesting book called Dixie Rising about this increasing Southern influence nationally. He and I almost had a thing going where we were going to go around and sort of debate that that idea, but I think Peter got too religious about his job and. Uh, we couldn't do it, but and well, then he moved to New York, and then he moved to New York, and all hope was lost. <laughs> uh, but I would always say, Peter, I mean, how is it that there's such a if, if these vices that you talk about, racism and extreme conservatism, traditionalism, whatever, anti-intellectualism, if if these are all Southern vices, how is it that there's such an incredible export market for them in the North? And and his reply was, well, I just think Southern vices export better than, than Southern virtues. <laughs> so I don't think that really answered my question. But it was such a good line, it shut me up temporarily. So I, I do think it's really, really interesting. And, and this Barbadian thing is just an example of, it, of, of everything that is sort of detected uh, as, as being really embarrassingly to the way far right or an embarrassing example of religious intolerance or racial intolerance or uh, what have you is, is sort of immediately somehow traced to Southerners or, or to Southern migrants. If you, you read a lot of the sociological literature of the last generation, you, you find out that these Southerners who were not for nothing known as hillbillies you know, who were just sort of accepted as uh, being only marginally more desirable as neighbors than, than black people in northern cities, you know, and were, were just uh, ridiculed publicly, ridiculed in the press, stereotyped, that they somehow managed to impose their values on all these people who'd been mocking them and discriminating against them all these years. So, you know, there's another one of those puzzles. Another part of the puzzle is that more black Southerners move north than white Southerners. Yeah. I'm thinking about what Southerners, particularly black Southerners, found in the north. You go read Richard Wright's Black Boy and his experience in Chicago. He thought he'd left discrimination back in the Mississippi Delta. Yeah, he was quickly disabused of that. I think, you know, what what you're seeing, of course, is, is if you stand way back from it, you're just looking at shifting demographic patterns that then equate to shifting cultural patterns and different sort of juxtapositions of values that the shifting of such a mass of the uh, black population to the north sort of does in a way. I mean, the, the, the problem is the terminology itself, uh, saying that that creates a more southern environment. You know, it's not really southern at all. It's just an environment where the relative sizes of the black and white population are closer so that you get more of the friction that you would expect out of that dynamic. Well, have you ever thought that those folks who are doing the social studying of the migration, when they just say the southern migration, they're really going to talk about the white migration. They're not considering black folks southerners. No, they don't. That's, uh, you know, that's, that's been a very interesting thing because conservatives and liberals in the South embattled cadre that the latter group is, basically just assume black people would want to have no association with the South and wouldn't be identified with it. And um, one of the most striking things that happens um, before the Civil Rights Movement has even run its course is you start to see black people in the South coming out and sort of uh, announcing that they are Southern and, and want to be seen as Southern. And, and of course, they have a different idea of, of you know, what being Southern is, and they certainly have a different perspective on Southern history. They, they sort of, I always say they, that uh, black and white Southerners have a common past experience very differently because the, the high points for whites were the, were the low points for, for black people and vice versa. But it, it really is it's a phenomenal study on, on, you know, how people identify. You know, we always thought that if you had to be, feel really weepy and nostalgic about your origins and background uh, if you were really trying to communicate a sense of attachment to it and that everything had to be just sort of in your mind rosy, well, you know, that's not going to apply to black Southerners who left the South and came back. 
but they identify with the whole experience, with the pain as well as the sense of community that they've managed to construct and maintain despite all their adversity. There was an obituary in the state newspaper this morning, and very nice obituary for an African-American gentleman who had spent 32 years in New York City as a member of the uh, Public Works Department, had been back in South Carolina for 15 years. He came back home. And since 1970, there has been a larger in-migration of African-Americans into South Carolina than out-migration. And most of those that are coming back are children of people who move to Philadelphia, Boston, New York, Washington, D.C., they're now coming back home. And it's not just to Charleston, Greenville, and Columbia. It's to small towns like Hartsville and Florence. And they're coming back home because there is a sense of place. I think there's any question about that. And that, that sense of place, of course, shows up everywhere as a sort of a defining trait, this attachment to place among Southerners and in a way that's, that's, that's different from you know, what you might find elsewhere in in the United States. I mean, they're they're obviously close-knit communities outside the South, but this sort of real fixation with being from a particular place. You and I both know of all kinds of examples of Civil War soldiers who who really saw themselves defending little bitty towns in South Carolina and Georgia uh, rather than even their states when they first signed up. And I, I, you know, I, I think that's one of the most transformative things about it. It's easy to think that the South went into the Civil War united, but there was such a sense of local attachment that... Because that they all were recruited as, as units within, within their districts or their parishes. Well, it was sort of, yeah, the, the, the whole Confederacy is sort of, you know, ironic because it really wasn't a Confederacy. Anyway, it was the Republic modeled on the United States, which is the nation I think they were leaving. Let me just put a footnote there. People have always talked about our state, South Carolina, as sort of being a little bit obstreperous and difficult to get along with. We, we talk about the founding of the Confederacy in Montgomery. South Carolina had a very difficult time of ratifying the Confederate Constitution. They wanted to put all sorts of amendments to the Confederate Constitution before it was ratified. It finally was pushed through, but believe me, folks, it was far from unanimous. And the hotbed of anti-Jefferson Davis and Richmond Authority was the Charleston Mercury. Yeah. So it's, it's a very interesting conundrum that, that, that uh, as you talk about, they were going to war and I can think of upcountry counties, Greenville, Lancaster, York. Those units, companies were recruited in that one area. And sometimes at a battle, you might lose 20 or 30 sons from one place. And in his wonderful history of Greenville, A.V. talks about Greenville had a railroad, but it didn't have the telegraph. And so the casualty list would come up from newspapers either in Charleston or Columbia, and an individual would stand in the back of a buckboard at the railroad station and every day read the casualty lists from the battlefront. Well, I'm, I'm struck, you know, just the numbers, the numerical losses that the, the southern population, southern white population, is decimated by the war, the male population, of course. And, you know, it reminds me when you, when you see these Confederate monuments in little town squares in the south and you go to, you go to France and see the Great War Monument and you can, little town, I mean, you see it's just full of names going all the way up and down each side of the spire, and you, you get a sense of what devastation, human devastation, their experience in war uh, inflicted. And so, I mean, I think that's, again, that's one thing that, that other Americans don't quite yet tune into is, is that, it, you know, it makes a difference if you can, you know, I, I really have to confess this. Uh, I was not really all that into the, the Civil War until about 15 years ago when a, a friend of mine who worked on a project editing the papers of uh, Andrew Johnson sent me a copy of a petition filed by my great-great-grandfather who was petitioning uh, the Secretary of War who at that time was Judah P. Benjamin. And he was petitioning because his older son, who was 16, had joined the local regiment marching off to war. But his younger boy, who was not of age, I think he was probably 13 at the time, had also run off and was with the regiment. And the younger one had come home. And 
he was petitioning, say he's underage and he's already at home, could he be discharged? Of course, no discharge was forthcoming, but what my great-great-grandfather didn't know was that his older son had died of, from disease uh, with the unit up in North Carolina, and this petition was filed in January, and in September his uh, younger son was killed at Antietam. Sharpsburg. Never, n- nobody of Sharpsburg. Well, there, there was a, a family over in, in what's now Darlington County who sent five sons off to the war. One was, they knew was killed. One came home maimed. One came home but was never right. And two were, and this was based upon the 1930s WPA interview. Uh, now the records are such, we know that of the two other sons, that they never, because the, the woman who did it said, I never knew what happened to my brothers, my other brothers. One died in Elmira at a POW camp. The other was killed in, in battle in Virginia. So that's five sons from, from one family. This state sent virtually its entire eligible white male population to fight between 1861 and 1865. Now, I know most of you in this room I can look at, you probably had a very good European history course at some point, and you heard about the Great War and the Lost Generation. In England, France, Germany, Russia, you're talking about 15 to 17% of the eligible male white population. In South Carolina, folks, it was over 30%, double the lost generation in Europe. So you've got to factor the human cost into any memory of the war. The fact that somebody lost a kinsman, or you look at the Confederate veterans coming back, annual reunions, the guy without an arm, guy without a leg. As you've written in Mississippi, majority of the state budget was for prostheses. Yeah. You know, as you say, this is a part of Southern history. It may not be everybody's part of Southern history, but that's part of what makes up who we are today. It's interesting, though. I uh, spoil a good thing with some heresy here. It seems to me, though, that you know that this is a function of time and memory, as you say, and increasingly with the Civil War, of course, memories of memories as recounted. And it does seem to me today that students I encounter at the University of Georgia and ones I hear about elsewhere are actually less interested in the Civil War, notably less, than they were when my career began, which, of course, was only a couple of months after the war. <laughs> well, you, you, you taught students who had blood knowledge of the war. So, I mean, that's, you've been... But, no, seriously, it, hey, in American history classes, Vietnam's ancient history. That's really ancient history. So when you try to do the revolution, it's difficult. I was just being kind of snarky when you said Antietam and I said Sharpsburg because... Yeah, that's what I said. I mean, most of you folks know there is a difference, right? Okay. Well, not only is it a difference, but the, the, it said a lot about you that, that you didn't know that there was a difference. You know, the, the Southerners always thought said it was Sharpsburg. Well, you know, see, actually there was a legislator in that when the first day my book came out, he read only one chapter, and that was the chapter on the war, and he called. He didn't get me. He got the, the young woman who was secretary at Southern Studies and said he got every battle right because I had used the southern names for, you know, it's not Bull Run, folks, it's Manassas. Well, I gotta, I gotta lay this one on you. The, um, I'm, uh, the, my research now has taken me across an incident, an important incident in the history of the Southern Historical Association, which came in 1949 when the, the Southern Historical Association was meeting in Williamsburg. And that meeting was the occasion for the first paper presented by a black historian to the Southern Historical Association, the great John Hope Franklin, of whom I know a lot of you have heard. Uh, and it was quite, you know, it was all kinds of, of hushed whispering about, the, you know, the session, and it was a huge crowd there, and it was kind of a, you know, nobody exactly knew how, what the reaction was going to be after Professor Franklin read his paper. And so, as he described it, first it was an initial hush after he, he finished. And, and then this elderly lady stood up and said, are we going to let him get away with it? 
And he thought, what? Oh, no. And, and she says, I mean, calling the war between the states the Civil War. And everybody in the crowd, it was like a big, you know, valve to release tension. The you know, laughter breaks out. And, this, and which, of course, was interesting in and of itself in 1949 that that would be amusing. However, what John Hope found out subsequently was that this lady was the daughter-in-law of President John Tyler, who had married late in life and fathered a son. And Southern politicians tend to do that. And her, her, she, she had married Lyon Tyler, who was a very distinguished historian of Virginia in the antebellum era. But what, what Dr. Franklin didn't know and occurred to me because I just happened to, I was just checking the story, and uh, I saw what her family name was. Walter, I could let you sit there a long time and you'd never guess. I have no idea. She was Susan G. Ruffin, oh. who was the granddaughter, I guess, of Edmund Ruffin. So you talk about history folding in and in and in on itself. Well, That's the South. Man. Well, I mean, it was not quite in jest of saying these, it wasn't just Southern politicians who married young women. There were not all that many eligible men after the war. A lot of Confederate veterans married much younger women. They might have been second or third wives. Sometimes that, quite frankly, was pushed by the woman because all Southern states like South Carolina had pensions, and the wives would inherit the pensions. When I first came to the University of South Carolina, there were still women who were considered true daughters of the Confederacy. In other words, their fathers had been Confederate veterans. These were women who were born in the 1880s and 1890s. So, uh, yeah, but that, what I'm saying is, you know, time is finally sort of stretching out. And I think that World War II, though, it's interesting that they go for the epic. They really love World War II. They'll, they'll get quiet and listen to me when I talk about World War II in a way they just won't when I'm talking about the tariff. You know. Well, I can't imagine one. <laughs> When you mention that story of, in Williamsburg, it's interesting the phrase she used because the war between the states didn't come into common usage till the 1920s and 1930s. In South Carolina, they, talk, they called it the Confederate War, or, as I said, the war, and everybody knew. Yeah, if you needed, if you needed more clarification, you weren't from around here. But, you know, as we get all sorts of folks coming into South Carolina, and they're welcome, and I think of a tale that a friend of mine talked about the University of Virginia, and they were looking for somebody who was going to be teaching Southern history, but they were looking at people who had degrees from somewhere other than Southern University. And the guy everybody thought was going to get the job, they were walking across the lawn there, and he looked at this gray bird over on the ground, and he said, what is that strange gray bird? And the chair of the search committee said, any Southern historian who does not know what a mockingbird is does not deserve a job. (laughs) Well, you know, I've said for much of my career there were too many people writing Southern history who had never stepped in cow manure. And uh, I think that that probably fits in with your your model there. It's not just Southern history. You talk about Southern literature and folks who deconstruct Faulkner and try to, can't figure out why there are two sets of hounds and the bear, well, any southern boys knows you got, you've got one to trim and one to, to bait them. And then they try to make all sorts of connections between the humans and the dogs, and I don't think Mr. Faulkner really had all of that. I don't believe he had that in mind. No. No. Um, well, they also don't understand, you know, some of them complain, well, what is he doing here? Is this, is this he trying stream of consciousness, you know? Well, a lot of times he's just storytelling. He's, but he's telling the, he's, his novels are, are stories told the way Southerners tell stories. And it's not always the shortest distance between two points. Okay, yeah. Now, now, now I want you to tell me, I want you to take, take the back road and get me from here to the place you grew up. And I don't mean take I-95. Can you, can you do that in 20 minutes? What do you mean? Exactly. But to the place I grew up. Just across the Savannah River. You were almost yeah. a South Carolinian. Shoot, I get to, yeah, I was. I was born in Anderson, and my family was in Hartwell, Hart County. Had been in the county for practically since the beginning. But uh, in those days, Anderson was where people in Hartwell went to be born or die. 
so I was born in Anderson, and I grew up, and it was sort of like, uh, as I was explaining to somebody a while ago, it was like being a South Carolinian, really, because the, uh, all the radio we listened to, all the TV, when we finally got a TV, came, came from uh, um, South Carolina. We read the Anderson Independent every day. But it was, it was a very strange thing. In fact, I grew up, I'll be honest, I was, I was a, early on a political junkie. And at least I knew that, I might not have understood it, but at least I knew the names, I knew the, the, the movers and shakers in South Carolina politics a lot better than I did in Georgia, just because I had access to information about them. That's one of those stories, I guess, that it sort of says that we have to be careful about making boundary lines mean too much. But uh, I also confess that as a younger boy, when I, you know, the, the drinking age for beer in South Carolina was 18 at a time when it was still 21 in Georgia. So there was sort of a, you know, an understanding in Hartwell. If you lived in Hartwell in that era and you were a teenager, there was no place to go but the Dairy Queen. You know, so everybody congregated the Dairy Queen and there was another hamburger joint the other end of town so you could do a figure eight, you know, go from one end of town to the other. But I had a a friend who would uh, come home from college even later. We would meet at the Dairy Queen and then we'd get in one of the other's cars and we'd head across to South Carolina and there was a place right within, you know, a half a mile of the bridge below the dam where we always went. And I had gotten on this kick uh, to show you how isolated I was from pop culture at the time. Somebody had offered me a can of Slits and I actually liked it, thought it was good. (laughs) And so I would go in, you know, and, and order a six-pack of slits. And, and uh, I noticed that, you know, there was maybe a little, you know, first few times I did it, people kind of looking at me. You know, but uh, I didn't really pick up on it. So one night, my friend and I missed connection at the Dairy Queen in Hartwell. And so he was, of course, concerned. And he went over and he went in to this place. And the old guy, the, there's an older couple who ran it. And they, it was the, they had the Naugahyde recliner with, duct tape and the <laughs> black and white TV with the uh, coat hanger, you know. I mean, it was all there, perfect. So he went in and he says, has, has Cobb been in tonight? The guy looked at him and said, ain't he that white boy that drank slits? <laughs> <laughs> now, an interesting adjunct to this was that they would also sell you hard alcohol if you were 18 at that place. Um, hey, we can get into liquor laws. As you, as you know, South Carolina is General Assembly is finally going to make us the last state in the union to allow the sale of alcohol on election day. Yeah, Mississippi had the most outrageous prohibition system where it was just sort of, you know. My college roommate was from Tunica. He was from the Mississippi Delta. Oh, yeah. Well, he, and I went to visit him, and uh, there was going to be a party on the levee. I was actually of age, but didn't make any difference to Tunica's a dry county. So we went to this place that was all, all the windows were boarded up, but there was a drive through <laughs> And at one, it had two windows. One, you put in your order and your money. Then you drove down and got your package goods. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just mentioned to, to Wes, I said, you know, isn't he worried about the sheriff? He said, no, the sheriff's his brother. <laughs> Well, Senator John Chart Williams was patrician, an old, white-haired senator from the Delta who was known. He, he had a run-in. He was, he was known to take a nip, and uh, I forget. I don't think it was a senator. It was a southern senator. I believe he was from Alabama who called him one time about drinking on the floor of the, of the Senate, and he said, uh, I believe it was maybe uh, Thomas Heflin from, from Alabama, and he said, uh, you know, at least when I come on the floor of the United States Senate, I'm in full possession of my faculties. And William says, what difference does that make? <laughs> he also was, he was visiting his friend Leroy Percy, who was, of course, the ancestor of the novelist Walker Percy. And he said something, you know, they were having a toddy, and he said, that is mighty fine whiskey. And uh, he said, well, it, it ought to be. I had to pay you know, outrageous sum for, for a gallon of it. And he says, oh, don't be concerned about that. It's good to live in a place where they know the value of good whiskey. <laughs>
But the, the uh, Willie Morris had the, just such, it was such a, a southern thing that, that you know, it, it was something you did, of course, you knew better than to mention, and you didn't want to bring it up in the wrong company at the wrong time. But, you know, the William Winter sort of made his, uh, his name in, in Mississippi politics as the state tax collector by actually uh, starting to collect money from bootleggers, collect tax from bootleggers. It's all, you know, none of it showed on the books necessarily, uh, not the official books, but uh, Willie Morris remembered... Uh, that what we call that the shakedown protection? Yeah, yeah, well, maybe it was. Well, one more thing about whiskey, and then, let, then we'll get back to something a little bit more uh, erudite. I, don't, I can't think like, of anything. <laughs> um, William Price Fox and other writers from South Carolina have written about moonshine and running liquor down the Bluff Road in Columbia. But there's a way to always tell. Lexington County moonshine was better than Richland County moonshine. There's a way to tell it. Get a Coca-Cola bottle, and you get a piece of hard candy. We used to call it horse candy, which you fed your horses, and you drop it. And if it disappears before it gets to the bottom of the Coke bottle, then it's good. <laughs> if it doesn't, you turn it down. Well, that, that's, there's that localism, see? They, they, you know, we have local preferences, just like barbecue preferences. Let's not get into barbecue. We don't have, we don't have near, near enough yeah, time. I'm scared some of these people might turn on us if we say the wrong thing about barbecue. Well, th- this, this is a different barbecue region from parts of the rest of the state. Well, let me, so. let me just say that I'm honored and uh, privileged as well to, to be a contributor to a volume uh, dedicated to, to Walter that will be coming out one of these days. And Walter was nice enough to invite me down to do a little talk when he was inducted into the South Carolina Hall of Fame. Uh, by the way, I said it was, a, at the time, it was a great occasion for Walter because he was inducted in with his old high school sweetheart, uh, Eliza Lucas Pinckney. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, That's but, because she spurned you. Yeah. yeah, she just wouldn't, you know, I, don't, I guess she didn't like my car. Um, that's, that's one place where, you know, it's pretty hard to see much hope in resisting this sort of mass commercialization and homogenization of everything. But I think barbecue at least presents the best example of resistance because I think it's a very good thing that it's taken so long for chain barbecue restaurants to get much of a foothold anywhere because it was just too darn hard to make decent barbecue on a mass scale. And let's, let's just use the present tense. It's still it still is. Hard. That's right. And you take a state like South Carolina where you, where you can tell. You don't need a GPS. You just see what kind of sauce is on the table. And you know what part of the state you're in. <laughs> right? Oh, absolutely. So, so I, I think, uh, you know, barbecue aficionados are at least holding out uh, a little bit against this chain thing. And the New York Times liked that because 20 years ago, my friend Chuck Kovacic, who was a geographer, did a barbecue map, and it appeared in the New York Times, the barbecue map of South Carolina and our four regions. He was asked to revise that about 10 years later, and the mustard base is spreading. Uh-huh. It has become the largest, even more than the, the uh, PD barbecue. All right. All right, Jim, I think we've reached a point where I'm talking a few minutes about the New South. You know, that's something that people have invented almost with every generation. But I'd like to look at Greenville because in the late 19th and early 20th century, it almost became a byword for the New South with the development of textiles. And it spearheaded the development of the textile industry. I mean, Textile Hall is located here for the rest of the region. And what the new Greenville has done today and I think I mentioned this to you when we were, we were talking last week, and that is Greenville's now become a tourist destination for folks from Atlanta. Now, you may find that, that may hard to... That blessing. Let me see. No, seriously, with Main Street, the art community, restaurants, folks want to get... This is an easy getaway for them, and it's a very pleasant getaway. But every history book you read that started with the late 1890s, they can talk about a new South. And every generation, it's interesting, we haven't invented, we don't talk about it much anymore. Not since the 1960s. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, the, the new South, as you've said, you know, meant so many different things to, uh, to so many people. And it actually became one of these, uh, you know, it, it, we're talking about this 
the, the idea of the South as other, it, it became a reference used to refer, if you said somebody was a New South governor, you meant he really wasn't Southern, or he wasn't like the rest of the, of the politicians down there. So it, was, so it became sort of a, a throwaway term uh, in that sense, too. But, you know, I, I was thinking about Greenville as we were driving over here because uh, in the uh, late 60s, uh, I was a member of a National Guard unit in, in Greenville. And at that point, I never spent that much time until I started coming to drills here. And, and, you know, Greenville just looked like a kind of a big old cotton mill town that was looked like things were starting to slow down, you know, pretty much. And... You know, I, I got to thinking about because I've I've just run across so much material and and so many examples of single industry towns that can either mean you know there is one single plant or a, a one single industry dominates the employment, and it, it really is rare, I think, for a, a place that was so dominated by one kind of of industry, one kind of employment, to enjoy the, the, the reinvigoration that Greenville has. I mean, it's always some good karma going out there in terms of the, the attraction and the, of, of international industry to, to the I-85 corridor and all that stuff. But what Greenville, what this area has now is the diversified economy that is the best insurance policy around uh, you know, when we're looking at, at things that, where so much investment is globalized and here today and gone tomorrow. And I think that the leadership, John West, uh, had the foresight to sort of jump in on that, on recruiting international industry, but the, the corporation of local officials was uh, uh, somebody provided leadership when it was a good well, time for it. Greenville, like Charleston, another success story in South Carolina, it's a public-private partnership, private investment as well as government investment. Neither one could do it by themselves. But i kind of like to wind up tonight. If we were to come back 50, 75 years from now, would people still be talking about a South? In other words, is the South going to survive as a distinct region? Well, uh, believe it or not, that's not the first time I've been asked that question. You know, I, I, I think it's going to survive in perception you know, which is really how it was born. And it was born as a, as a sort of negative perception as, as far as the national image was concerned, but it became, a, you know, a perception, an ideal for Southerners. And, you know, we, we're clearly going to, you know, uh, a Walmart doesn't look much different in Greenville than it does in Connecticut, you know, and, and strip malls don't look much different. But there is that, that sort of sense of attachment since that there is a deeply anchored uh, historical presence here that I think is going to do a lot to sort of sustain that perception. A couple of years ago, I was uh, doing a talk down on the Georgia coast uh, in an area, a fairly affluent area, where a lady told me after the talk about a story that, that she had just moved down a couple of years ago from Massachusetts or somewhere, but that there was such a, a, a sort of colony of emigres uh, from outside the South there that um, when they had the orientation day for the private school there, the headmaster said, well, how many of you here were uh, consider yourself Southerners? And not a single adult stood up, but all the kids did. <laughs> so, you know, we always had the idea that in-migration is going to dilute Southerness. But, you know, it may be a, a different kind of southerness. We might not even recognize it as southerness or want it to be southerness, but I think there's going to be something. You talked about your undergraduates now for whom the Civil War is not a particular interest. Yeah, I, I agree, but there is, uh, time is really the, the, the very unknown here in terms of, of what its effects will be. But people, I, th I do believe people have uh, a natural sort of instinct toward attachments to places where they, they grow up and they can call home, insofar as you can call Atlanta home. And we, we misread that, what it's going to mean to, uh, to the younger generation coming along to have some sort of sense of, of regional attachment. So uh, it's uncharacteristically optimistic of me uh, to, to even hope that's true, but I, I think it might well. A couple of years ago, I did a teacher institute and it's 30 teachers from all across South Carolina. 
I said I want to ask you three questions. How many of you live in the school district where you teach? How many of you worship in the school district where you teach? And how many of you shop in the school district where you teach? One out of 30. Somebody could answer maybe one or, you know, but in all three, one. I mean, if somebody teaches in Greenville, they might live in Spartanburg or vice versa. And I know people commute to Columbia from 40 or 50 miles around every day. Well, we agree. We don't know how that's going to, going to play out. I mean, it may, may sort of reconfigure people's sense of what local means. Uh, but I've, I've said many times, if you tell me, I want you to show me the most authentically Southern person you can find, the first requirement is somebody who has never given a second's thought to what it means to be Southern. Because most of the people who, who evoke Southernness to us are not folks who sort of sat around worrying about whether they were losing their Southernness or whatever. They, you know, they were just going to, going to slop the hogs and, and hey. do all that other stuff. Hey, you got a beard and you can still tie your own bow tie. <laughs> Barely. But. Okay. Jim, I, I, yes, you want to say that? Yeah, I want to, I want to say you know, how grateful I am to be back here for the third time. And uh, although it's puzzling to me, most of you folks, when I talk to you one-on-one, seem to be pretty intelligent. <laughs> but uh, nonetheless, it's always a good feeling. It's really starting to feel like home for us coming back. And, but also I want to say, uh, this guy right here, he's what I want to be if I ever grow up. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I surely did. Jim Cobb and I go way back, and we were talking about a subject that means a great deal to both of us, both personally and professionally. Not that we have any answers, because the question of the South is one that everyone has to deal with, not just those of us in the academy. Where it's going, we don't know. But folks, in 2014, there still is an American South. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Production of today's episode of Walter Edgar's Journal was made possible in part by a grant from the Jolly Foundation. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina ETV Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETV Endowment of South Carolina. (laughs) 